Game Cool Books, Episode 2, A Picture of the Aurora. Welcome back to our reading, discussion, and make-believe adaptation of The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. This is Wesley Schantz. This week, we're looking at Lantern Slides with Lord Asriel in Chapter 2, The Idea of North, and then at some imaginary lantern slides of our own in the recess following. The chapter opens with the meeting between Lord Asriel and the master of Jordan College, with Lyra looking on from her hiding place in the wardrobe. The story continues without a break from the end of chapter one, but the emphasis is somewhat different. Rather than an explorer infiltrating into the retiring room, as she was in the opening of the book, Lyra will be an observer, though not a passive one. Her interest will mirror and serve as a model for our own. She has made her choice, and now the consequences of that choice, trespassing and saving her Uncle Asriel's life, will begin to unfold. We're definitely in grown-up territory now, and see up close some of the high political tension that we've been hearing about. The tension between Lord Asriel and the Master structures the second chapter, along with a corresponding tension between what Lyra understands and what she doesn't but would like to. Much as the relationship between Lyra and her demon, and our relationship to them was sort of the focus in the first chapter. We'll consider Lord Asriel and the Master's mutual watchfulness now that the poisoning has been foiled. We'll watch with Lyra as Asriel makes a bid for her support and that of the assembled scholars, them to fund his expedition to the north, and it seems to her for her imagination and the reader's engagement in his studies. All sorts of critical seeds are planted in the course of the chapter, with its curious coda between the master and the librarian. We hear about dust and the northern lights, other worlds and Panzerbjörna, the Grumman expedition and Trepanning, the magisterium and the oblation board, and something called the alethiometer, which foretells an adventure lying ahead for Lyra and a terrible betrayal. Without belaboring anything too much, we'll try to take them in turn and then turn to our notes for the imaginary video game adaptation of this part of the story. The Master has the first word here, but Lord Asriel clearly has the upper hand. Lord Asriel, said the Master heavily, and came forward to shake his hand. From her hiding place, Lyra watched the Master's eyes, and indeed they flicked toward the table for a second where the Tokai had been. Master, said Lord Asriel, I came too late to disturb your dinner, so I made myself at home in here. Hello, sub-rector. Glad to see you're looking so well. Excuse my rough appearance. I've only just landed. Yes, master. The Tokai's gone. I think you're standing in it. The porter knocked it off the table, but it was my fault. Hello, chaplain. I read your latest paper with great interest. He moved away with the chaplain, leaving Lyra with a clear view of the master's face, it was impassive, but the demon on his shoulder was shuffling her feathers and moving restlessly from foot to foot. Lord Asriel was already dominating the room, and although he was careful to be courteous to the master in the master's own territory, it was clear where the power lay. So Lord Asriel claims responsibility for the spilled wine, and Lyra can see through the master's impassivity by noticing where his eye contact drifts automatically and how his demon fidgets. In similar ways, presumably, everyone in the room can perceive how Asriel holds court whilst the master fries poppies. 
The scholars greeted the visitor and moved into the room, some sitting around the table, some in the armchairs, and soon a buzz of conversation filled the air. Lyra could see that they were powerfully intrigued by the wooden case, the screen, and the lantern. She knew the scholars well, the librarian, the subrector, the inquirer, and the rest. They were men who had been around her all her life, taught her, chastised her, consoled her, given her little presents, chased her away from the fruit trees in the garden. They were all she had for a family. They might even have felt like a family if she knew what a family was, though if she did, she'd have been more likely to feel that about the college servants. The scholars had more important things to do than attend to the affections of a half-wild, half-civilized girl left among them by chance. The master lit the spirit lamp under the little silver chafing dish and heated some butter before cutting half a dozen poppy heads open and tossing them in. Poppy was always served after a feast. It clarified the mind and stimulated the tongue and made for rich conversation. It was traditional for the master to cook it himself. Notice there the offhand remark about spirit, which is, of course, just a kind of uh, oil for the lamp. Um, now, in passing, we also hear more about Lyra and her relationship to the scholars and servants. The narrator's reference to the fruit trees in the garden must allude to Genesis. We'll get a much better sense of what Lyra's upbringing there has been like in the next chapter, chapter 3. Though, for the as-yet unraised issue of her parentage, we'll have to wait a while yet. We also see how careful she can be in some ways, and how careless in others. Under the sizzle of the frying butter and the hum of talk, Lyra shifted around to find a more comfortable position for herself. With enormous care, she took one of the robes, the full-length fur, off its hanger and laid it on the floor of the wardrobe. "'You should have used a scratchy old one,' whispered Pantalaimon. "'If you get comfortable, too comfortable, you'll go to sleep.' "'If I do, it's your job to wake me up,' she replied. Moving ahead a little, again, it's the master who opens the formal presentation, though everything to be presented comes from Asriel. First of all, Asriel arranges his seating chart. Thank you, master, said Lord Asriel. To start with, I have a few slides to show you. Subrector, you can see best from here, I think. Perhaps the master would like to take the chair near the wardrobe? Lyra marveled at her uncle's skill. The old sub-rector was nearly blind, so it was courteous to make room for him near the screen, and his moving forward meant that the master would be sitting next to the librarian, only a matter of a yard or so from where Lyra was crouched in the wardrobe. As the master settled in the armchair, Lyra heard him mur murmur, The devil. He knew about the wine. I'm sure of it. Pullman has Lyra appreciate the skillful maneuver here, placing an elderly man up front respectfully, and underhandedly moving the master to the back, close enough for Lyra to overhear what he says. The devil. Now, having looked closely at the lines from Milton, that should also get our attention, just like the fruit trees in the garden. And the master will invoke the name of God, too, a bit later. In between, Asriel takes center stage. He effectively becomes the storyteller for the bulk of this chapter. And he's a storyteller after Pullman's own heart. His presentation is intensely visual and caters to his audience, yet without coddling them. Quite the opposite, by enticing, firing their curiosity, 
tempting their imaginations. Pullman also is not above his own sleight of hand and red herrings like Azriel's ploy with the wooden box. Ostensibly, remember, Lyra has been left in the wardrobe in order to spy on the master. But the harvest of information there turns out to be minimal, and in the coda with the librarian, any lingering doubts we may have about the master's being a bad guy should be allayed. And Lyra is not present for that discussion at all. It's only the reader who spies on them this time. The real reason Lyra stays in the wardrobe, clearly, is to enchant her, and us with her, with stories. To single out the bloodiest red herring, she wants to see the severed head, but much more important severing someone mentions in connection with the first photogram of dust goes unrecalled for the moment. Turning now to those photograms, Azriel himself tells us the first are not directly about any of his various motivations for going north. The political screen, the investigation into the lost Grumman expedition, and the research into mysterious natural phenomena. Instead, they demonstrate something much more critical. A circular photogram in sharp black and white appeared on the screen. It had been taken at night under a full moon, and it showed a wooden hut in the middle distance, its walls dark against the snow that surrounded it, and lay thickly on the roof. Beside the hut stood an array of philosophical instruments, which looked to Lyra's eye like something from the Anberic Park on the road to Yarnton. Aerials, wires, porcelain insulators, all glittering in the moonlight and thickly covered in frost. A man in furs, his face hardly visible in the deep hood of his garment, stood in the foreground, with his hand raised as if in greeting. To one side of him stood a smaller figure. The moonlight bathed everything in the same pallid gleam. That photogram was taken with a standard silver nitrate emulsion, Lord Asriel said. I'd like you to look at another one, taken from the same spot only a minute later, with a new, specially prepared emulsion. He lifted out the first slide and dropped another into the frame. This was much darker. It was as if the moonlight had been filtered out. The horizon was still visible, with the dark shape of the hut and its light, snow-covered roof standing out. But the complexity of the instruments was hidden in darkness. But the man had altogether changed. He was bathed in light, and a fountain of glowing particles seemed to be streaming from his upraised hand. Asriel gets around explaining the nature of dust, the crucial mystery at the heart of everything by turning the scholar's attention to the curious method of representing it photographically and to the possible repercussions of the evidence that is thus brought to light. It's dust, Lord Asriel repeated. It registered as light on the plate because particles of dust affect this emulsion as photons affect silver nitrate emulsion. It was partly to test it that my expedition went north in the first place. As you see, the figure of the man is perfectly visible. Now I'd like you to look at the shape to his left. Now, in the diptych of these two photos, a great deal of art is displayed with that apotheosis of art which is its own concealment. Pullman makes it look easy. He simply shows and does not tell 
and we are fascinated. His interest in photography is evident in his earlier series of Sally Lockhart books, Victorian thrillers well worth cozying up to on a chilly night, as well as in his magnificent essay, Miss Goddard's Grave. In that piece, as elsewhere, Pullman makes his bid for the superiority of realism over fantasy, if genres are distinguished and works must be categorized and pigeonholed. Again, his art here seems to consist in engaging the resources of fantasy and speculative science fiction, especially emulsions, mysterious particles, demons, dust, in the service of rendering a captivating scene of human relationships. Powerful Lord Asriel usurping the wise master, catching the attention of the learned men and the young girl alike, along with our own as readers, in the service of some purpose which may be equally entertainment and something more serious, but which eludes being captured itself. We'll have more to say about dust later, when the story catches up to it, but the name is clearly meant to be evocative in its own right. Like those fruit trees in the garden, it alludes powerfully to Genesis, but also to Hamlet, his quintessence of dust, and also his thought experiment in Act V with the remains of Alexander. By capitalizing dust and pairing it photographically with light, albeit as a kind of inverse, and this all along with the chapter title about the idea of North, the theories of Plato are strongly suggested, whose ideas or forms, often rendered with capital letters, and whose illusory pageants of the cave are born like lantern slides or shadow plays before the prisoners who are unaware of their fetters. With hindsight, we might note a few irregularities in Pullman's depiction of dust here, though, like the old presenter, my memory is faulty, so I could push these too far find that they are off target as I go along. We'll learn later that dust is drawn to the works of art and intelligence, as well as to that embodied awareness itself in mature people. And so, we might wonder why it does not light up the instruments surrounding the figure in the picture, as well as the figure himself. When we turn to the city in the Northern Lights, the opposite problem seems to be posed. Now, the dust effect depicts a vision which is purely works of human art and architecture. We'll learn that this city has practically no adults left in it who would attract the dust. Inconsistencies such as these aside, we must agree with the Palmyrian professor. It is a very fine photogram. It has many names. It's composed of storms of charged particles and solar rays of intense and extraordinary strength, invisible in themselves, but causing this luminous radiation when they interact with the atmosphere. If there had been time, I would have had this slide tinted to show you the colors, pale green and rose for the most part, with a tinge of crimson along the lower edge of that curtain-like formation. This is taken with ordinary emulsion. Now I'd like you to look at a picture taken with the special emulsion. He took out the slide, 
Lyra heard the master say quietly, If he forces a vote, we could try to invoke the residence clause. He hasn't been resident in the college for thirty weeks out of the last fifty-two. He's already got the chaplain on his side, the librarian murmured in reply. Lord Asriel put a new slide in the lantern frame. It showed the same scene. As with the previous pair of pictures, many of the features visible by ordinary light were much dimmer in this one, and so were the curtains of radiance in the sky. But in the middle of the aurora, high above the bleak landscape, Lyra could see something solid. She pressed her face to the crack to see more clearly, and she could see the scholars near the screen leaning forward, too. As she gazed, her wonder grew, because there in the sky was the unmistakable outline of a city. Towers, domes, walls, buildings and streets suspended in the air. She nearly gasped with wonder. It's the image which gave Pullman his original title, and a wonderfully creative image it is, the replacing of heaven with the works of human intellect, shining through a rare but entirely natural phenomenon, attracting scholars and explorers to the ends of the earth to study it and, as we'll see, to ultimately find their way through to reach it. The idea becoming a reality. The promise of art, which begins with an inspiring word or image and ends with a product ready to share with others and communicate that original impulse, however incompletely to them as well. Pullman talks in several places about how he arranges his ideas for stories on little slips of paper, moving them around to make a kind of storyboard of the images which will become scenes and chapters, which may need the missing bits filled in or some extraneous parts lopped off. He talks about his interest in images generally, wishing he'd studied art but had to do Latin in school and later chose to do English at Oxford instead. Still, he's since made up for the lost time, writing comics and picture books and even drawing sets of illustrations of his own for each chapter of his dark materials, which can be found on his website. Much as in other essays he admires the skill of painters such as Manet and Ingres, in works such as the ball at the f the bar at the Folies Berger and the Source, their realism, like his, is blended with perspectival and symbolic elements, which add to, rather than detracting from, the powerful sense of reality that they impart. After the astonishing image of the city visible through the majestic curtain of the northern lights, Lord Asriel plays his trump card. If you remember, Grumman's expedition vanished 18 months ago. The German academy sent him up there to go as far north as the magnetic pole and make various celestial observations. It was in the course of that journey that he observed the curious phenomenon we've already seen. Shortly after that, he vanished. It's been assumed that he had an accident and that his body's been lying in a crevasse all this time. In fact, there was no accident. What if you got there, said the dean. Is that a vacuum container? Lord Asriel didn't answer at first. Lyra heard the snap of metal clips and a hiss of air as air rushed into a vessel. And then there was a silence. But the silence didn't last long. After a moment or two, Lyra heard a confused babble break out, 
cries of horror, loud protests, voices raised in anger and fear. The master's voice cut through them all. Lord Azrael, what in God's name have you got there? This is the head of Stanislaus Grumman. For all that, Pullman shows some creative restraint here. No more is said about trepanning for now than what the reader can glean from the context, that there's apparently a hole in the top of the skull. And so we might reasonably assume that that is part of the scalping desecration rather than the mark of shamanic respect that we'll later learn it is. And then rather than coming out and saying armored bears, we hear a few times about Panserbjörna and learn that something about this does not make any sense to Lyra without having it spelled out why that should be so. Who is Jofur Ragnason? said someone. The king of Svalbard, said the Palmyrian professor. Yes, that's right, one of the Panzerbjörne. He is a usurper of sorts, tricked his way onto the throne, or so I understand. But a powerful figure, by no means a fool, in spite of his ludicrous affectations, having a palace built of imported marble, setting up what he calls a university. For whom? For the bears? said someone else, and everyone laughed. But the Palmyrian professor went on. For all that, I tell you that Jofur Ragnarsson would be capable of doing this to Grumman. At the same time, he could be flattered into behaving quite differently if the need arose. And you know how, do you, Trelawney? said the dean sneeringly. Indeed I do. Do you know what he wants above all else? Even more than an honorary degree? He wants a demon. Find a way to give him a demon, and he'd do anything for you. The scholars laughed heartily. For all that the parallels to Grumman and to Jofur Ragnarsson add to and complicate the picture we get of the confrontation here between Lord Azrael and the Master, the showdown between these two powerful figures is kept in the frame. Despite all the talk of Tartar troop movements and scalping practices, it is the impression that politics is a matter of skill and personal relationships with well-aimed words, images, and silences. That is the predominant lesson from Azrael's defeat of the master. Early on, the librarian says he's already got the chaplain on his side. And we'll learn in the next chapter that that chapel is the most advanced in the world. And later, we hear the master thinking of invoking technicalities to try to block Lord Azrael, much like Azrael wryly supposing that they'd fine him a dozen bottles for not wearing the appropriate clothes in the retiring room back in chapter one. The dean, whom Azrael repeatedly ignores, is a little reminiscent of Terry Pratchett's Dean of the Unseen University, and perhaps of any dean anywhere. Though Azrael gives a great deal of information, he also pointedly remains aloof from certain comments and questions. Just as important as what he shows and tells is what he observes and how he does so. We're told his eyes glitter with sardonic amusement, chiefly at the master's expense, we must imagine. And Azrael himself, though he escaped poisoning partly by accident, uses a kind of poison of his own 
which intoxicates rather than killing its targets here. His promise of knowledge is laced with deceit and temptation, and it consists in spectacle rather than secrecy. But it conceals his true motives no less effectively for all that. Now, at the close of the scene, we see Pan change his form for the first time. We might miss it if we weren't watching for it. Lyra was following this with puzzlement. What the Palmyrian professor said made no sense at all. Besides, she was impatient to hear more about scalping and the northern lights and that mysterious dust. But she was disappointed, for Lord Azriel had finished showing his relics and pictures, and the talk soon turned into a college wrangle about whether or not they should give him some money to fit out another expedition. Back and forth the arguments ranged, and Lyra felt her eyes closing. Soon she was fast asleep, with Pantalaimon curled around her neck in his favorite sleeping form as an ermine. So that royal creature, the ermine, uh, I think da Vinci has a really good painting of a girl with an ermine um, at the museum in D.C. Anyway, uh, that, and then of course that little note about relics, uh, kind of a curious choice of words there for what Azriel's been showing, but okay. Um, all that aside, like Lyra's foundling status, this is this change of the demon, that is. This is downplayed by Pullman, whereas in the hands of another storyteller, it might have been highlighted from the start. The shape-shifting ability and uh, orphan status play a more or less major role in Tolkien, Lewis, and especially J.K. Rowling, but also in Dickens and George Eliot and the fairy tales that Pullman would probably rather his work be aligned with. As he describes in his essays, Pullman strives to stick to the path of his story rather than getting lost in the woods of his world and all the things that are possible there. In this chapter, I think he strikes a precarious but masterful balance between providing background information about Lyra and her world and leading the reader into it along an irresistible thread of wonder, along a delicious trail of breadcrumbs. After Lyra's nap spares us the college wrangle over funding, Asriel debriefs Lyra and sends her to bed without taking her wishes for more information or her wish to come along with him to the north very seriously for more than a brief moment. She woke with a start when someone shook her shoulder. Quiet, said her uncle. The wardrobe door was open. He was crouched there against the light. They've all gone, but there are still some servants around. Go to your bedroom now, and take care that you say nothing about this. Did they vote to give you the money? She said sleepily. Yes. What's dust? She said, struggling to stand up after having been cramped for so long. Nothing to do with you. It is to do with me, she said. If you wanted me to be a spy in the wardrobe, you ought to tell me what I'm spying about. Can I see the man's head? Pantalaimon's white ermine fur bristled. She felt it tickling her neck. Lord Azriel laughed shortly. Don't be disgusting, he said, and began to pack his slides and specimen box. Did you watch the master? 
Yes, and he looked for the wine before he did anything else. Good, but I've scotched him for now. Do as you're told and go to bed. Where are you going? Back to the north. I'm leaving in ten minutes. Can I come? He stopped what he was doing and looked at her as if for the first time. His demon turned her great tawny leopard eyes on her too, and under the concentrated gaze of both of them, Lyra blushed, but she gazed back fiercely. Your place is here, said her uncle finally. But why? Why is my place here? Why can't I come to the north with you? I want to see the northern lights and bears and icebergs and everything. I want to know about dust and that city in the air. Is it another world? You're not coming, child. Put it out of your head. The times are too dangerous. Do as you're told and go to bed. And if you're a good girl, I'll bring you back a walrus tusk with some Eskimo carving on it. Don't argue any more, or I shall be angry. And his demon growled with a deep, savage rumble that made Lyra suddenly aware of what it would be like to have teeth meeting in her throat. She compressed her lips and frowned hard at her uncle. He was pumping the air from the vacuum flask and took no notice. It was as if he'd already forgotten her. Without a word, but with lips tight and eyes narrowed, the girl and her demon left and went to bed. Now, at this point, the scene shifts to what I've been calling the coda between the master and the librarian. Like the intense silence after the mention of a severed child, and that brief one before the babble upon seeing the head of Stanislaus Grumman breaks out among the scholars, the scene between the old friends and allies provides a measure of rest, or a kind of counterpoint, which helps develop the main story. In this coda, we more truly enter unknown territory than even Lyra did, and we do so without her, hearing the master and librarian commiserate in their privacy, without filtering their words through any other character. The master and the librarian were old friends and allies, and it was their habit, after a difficult episode, to take a glass of brandwine and console each other. So after they'd seen Lord Asriel away, they strolled to the master's lodging and settled in his study with the curtains drawn and the fire refreshed, their demons in their familiar places on knee or shoulder, and prepared to think through what had just happened. Do you really believe he knew about the wine? said the librarian. Of course he did. I have no idea how, but he knew, and he spilled the decanter of himself. Of course he did. Forgive me, master, but I can't help being relieved. I was never happy about the idea of... of poisoning him. Yes, of murder. Hardly anyone would be happy at that idea, Charles. The question was whether doing that would be worse than the consequences of not doing it. Well, some providence has intervened, and it hasn't happened. I'm only sorry I burdened you with the knowledge of it. No, no, protested the librarian, but I wish you had told me more. The master was silent for a while, before saying, Yes, perhaps I should have done. The alethiometer warns of appalling consequences if Lord Asriel pursues this research. Apart from anything else, the child will be drawn in and I want to keep her safe as long as possible. Like their Brantvine, this new level of immediacy invites our sympathy for the master. As he says, 
some providence, small p, has intervened. And as the librarian says, but I wish you had told me more. We can sympathize with all these reflections. Master's motives are revealed to be a care for Lyra, rather than any particular malice towards Lord Asriel. Along with the librarian, we begin to wonder about this strange alethiometer, which is the source of the master's foreknowledge of consequences, and thus of his worries. As more information about the role of the church is supplied by the narrator, tracking more or less the master's train of thought, we get that astonishing bit of alternate history I alluded to last week, John Calvin as Pope. And we hear about the metastasizing of the church into the magisterium after the papacy is abolished upon his death. We learn that Lord Asriel is not at all in league with any part of it, and that supporting him will bring the conflicting bodies of the magisterium together in ways that could threaten Jordan College's independence. This seems to be what the master means about keeping a balance between the oblation board and the consistorial court. Another important character is alluded to, who does not, or sorry, who does this time have something personal against Asriel, who operates within the newly ascendant oblation board, which so frightens the librarian the little he knows about it. But we learn no more about her for now. Keeping straight any more than the fact that there's something called the magisterium, it's very powerful and is to be feared, was beyond me as a child reading this book. It's only on repeated rereadings that the meaning of the master's words and his explanation and the narrators of church politics has begun to make some sense. And the oblation board and the consistorial court could even be understood as another manifestation of the same process that we've been seeing with Lord Asriel usurping the place of the master. The oblation board and its powerful protectors, as they say. But uh, the most important things that the master imparts here, and that the narrator says too, and the most confusing to a young reader, have to do with the irony of Lyra's destiny and her interest in dust or rather, its interest in her. But how do you know that, for God's sake? The alethiometer again? Yes, Lyra has a part to play in all this, and a major one. The irony is that she must do it all without realizing what she's doing. She can be helped, though, and if my plan with the Tokai had succeeded, she would have been safe for a little longer. I would have liked to spare her a journey to the north. I wish, above all things, that I were able to explain it to her. She wouldn't listen, the librarian said. I know her ways only too well. Try to tell her anything serious, and she'll half listen for five minutes, and then start fidgeting. Quiz her about it next time, and she'll have completely forgotten. If I talk to her about dust, you don't think she'd listen to that? The librarian made a noise to indicate how unlikely he thought that was. Why on earth should she, he said. Why should a distant theological riddle interest a healthy, thoughtless child? Because of what she must experience. 
Part of that includes a great betrayal. Who's going to betray her? No, no, that's the saddest thing. She will be the betrayer, and the experience will be terrible. She mustn't know that, of course, but there's no reason for her not to know about the problem of dust. And you might be wrong, Charles. She might well take an interest in it if it were explained in a simple way, and it might help her later on. It would certainly help me to be less anxious about her. That's the duty of the old, said the librarian, to be anxious on behalf of the young. And the duty of the young is to scorn the anxiety of the old. They sat for a while longer, then parted, for it was late and they were old and anxious. The irony of Lyra acting without knowing is akin, in some ways, to the irony of us knowing all this, overhearing the master from our other world with no mathematical proofs required, and of our being very much like that healthy, thoughtless child described by the librarian. And in some way, we can know and not know uh, all of this that we've read and yet may not fully understand, much as Lyra has overheard all of this in the retiring room, yet doesn't really make sense to her yet. Uh, there's that ominous foretelling of betrayal hanging over everything. And so, with the duty of the old and the scorn of the young, we bring the coda and the second chapter to a close. Now, to recess. It may not seem like there's a whole lot to say this time about the game adaptation, since you don't get to do anything other than sit in the wardrobe and listen. But this actually seems highly significant when you think about its implications for the project. To make playing Chapter 2 into a game, or pretending to anyway, and imagining what that would be like, brings a crucial question directly into focus. How does storytelling change when it passes through the medium of a game rather than a book? It seems to me that just as Chapter 1 illustrated the player's responsibility for Lyra's actions, and how that immerses us in the story. So, chapter 2 makes us responsible for her attention, her understanding. So though physical action is restrained, the player's attention will have to be fully engaged to make this part of the game a success. As a way to show this, I think we can look at the one thing Lyra actually does in the whole chapter, taking down that fur and then being scolded by Pan for taking such a soft one to sit on. Her focus can be represented by that power meter that we introduced last time. So if the player's health depletes too far, they faint or die, and the game ends, they have to restart. If their power depletes too far, they fall asleep or become unconscious. Now, to keep Lyra's power up and keep her awake, the player will have to focus their attention on the most interesting things being shown and told during the scene in the retiring room. Some will be obvious, like training Lyra's view on the screen during the photograms, but then 
centering her gaze on the specific parts of the pictures that Azriel points out will boost her power even more. Shifting her attention back to the master and librarian when they murmur to one another will do the same. Or looking at the master frying the poppies when their smell and that of the tobacco smoke is making her sleepy will help keep her awake. Falling asleep too soon will cause Pan to wake Lyra irritably, and the player will be spared from having to restart for now. But making it through the whole chapter without her falling asleep, the player will be rewarded with an extra transformation for Pan to Lyman. He'll be granted a miniature version of Stelmaria, a snow leopard. So once Azriel reaches the end of his presentation, and the player must be patient enough and have built up her power enough to wait for the master to move aside so Lyra can finally see the severed head, Pan's transformation option will be unlocked, and a short tutorial will explain how to use it. We'll learn that this moth form that he's had since the start of the game has the effect of increasing Lyra's attention and helps her to see around corners or hide in dark places. But switching Pan into his ermine form and having him curl up around Lyra's neck will allow her to nap, restoring her power and health rapidly back to full. And so the player will be cued to do just that, and if you completed the challenge, a brief note and some kind of little sound effect will reveal that Pan's snow leopard form has been unlocked as well. Then that argument with Azriel will take place upon his waking Lyra up, and then the player will be able to explore the college for the first time. So we'll insert that between the end of that scene and the coda. Now, since it's nighttime and Lyra isn't supposed to be out, most rooms and buildings will be locked or guarded by porters and scholars and servants who will turn her back for now. So you're sort of limited in what you can actually do around the college at this point. Still, if you pass near the master's house, Lyra will see the firelight glowing dimly through the window, and she'll wonder what he's up to in there. You can have her steal some apples from the fruit trees, and uh, find a few of the younger scholars maybe sneaking out over one of the walls. Now, if you wander around the college for more than 10 or 20 minutes, though, Pan will suggest that it's time you go to bed. He'll mark the direction of Lyra's bedroom, uh, and your power meter will start dropping rapidly the more that you stubbornly stray from the right direction. I don't think that there needs to be an in-game clock of any kind, um, kind of keeping track of uh, night and day and all that, but, but instead there will be certain events, like changing Pan to his ermine form while you're in the wardrobe, that will trigger the passage of time and bring you to the next portion of the story like Azriel shaking you awake, or uh, like going to sleep once you find your way to the bed, which will shift the scene over to that coda in the library. I think we still need to overhear that, but it will proceed simply as a cutscene. The player won't control either character, or, or the camera, or anything like that. Uh, for passages like this, and there are a few like this throughout the book uh, of straight narration, which Lyra doesn't directly play a part in, I'd like to almost just let the audiobook play over the spare gestures of the characters, their facial expressions, 
perhaps a slideshow of some historical drawings and paintings, collages, representing the history that's being narrated. Maybe we see in this case a silhouette of a beautiful lady with a monkey demon, and then of flying buttresses and stained glass windows of churches, and then of sounds of the soft pouring of brandy and the crackle of the fire, and finally the creaking of old bones as the old friends say good night. Though the alethiometer is mentioned here, and maybe the word itself lit up with gold or something in the text on screen, I don't think we should see the golden compass itself yet. The screen fades out on the master gazing into the dying fire, his raven demon resting. And this is where chapter two ends. I hope that sounds intriguing enough uh, without being too confusing. Uh, I know I didn't do a good job explaining irony. I frankly don't think it's possible, but rather that you sort of figure out what it means through the experience of a fair amount of reading and, and, uh, and discussion. But anyway, maybe it's just that I don't know what irony is <laughs> well enough to explain it. Uh, anyhow, as Pullman challenges his young readers, with the coda particularly, simultaneously reassuring them of the master's good intentions and his care for Lyra. So, the game should not sugarcoat the experience of that portion of the story too much. I think it would be fun, though, to get a taste of the college grounds first, getting to explore around with Lyra before you have to sit for another long uh, exposition period there. Um, and so, that would make the coda uh, more of a kind of interlude before the long chapter three, where we'll finally fully explore Lyra's Jordan and much of Oxford more thoroughly, uh, from the rooftops down to the catacombs and wine cellars. And we'll even make an imaginative flight over the landscape down to Limehouse, is it? For the disappearance of Tony Macarios. And that'll be a proper interlude before the story it's, is really getting rolling there at the end of chapter three, long chapter. Uh, I'll also uh, look forward to sharing a few developments with you about this project, and I will hopefully have a conversation episode ready to release as well uh, this coming week or the following. So, like Miss Goddard's grave, where Pullman imagines that school of morals, and I highly recommend that you read that essay. I'll again post a link to that in the description. Um, like that school of morals, I think that this this imaginary game uh, would be a brilliant, a brilliant uh, school for anyone interested in learning about, well, demons, dust, irony, providence, uh, all sorts of things. But, but ultimately, yeah, um, human behavior, right? Relationships, morals, uh, deceptions, and even betrayal. So hopefully that is something that the game will convey one of these days, and I hope that I'm doing some of that here uh, through the descriptions of it and my read of this story. I hope you're enjoying, and until next time, take care. <laughs>